For part two of our sixth interview, Dr. Rebecca Flicht chats with Dr. Grace Janik. Sit back, grab a cup of coffee, and enjoy what we think are valuable lessons about our history, sparking innovation, and newer surgical applications of reproductive surgery. I don't know if you have this experience, you know, in your in your current hat that you're wearing um, as medical director, but um, you know, to be able to take that patient and be her fertility physician, take her along her journey, and if she needs surgery, do the surgery for her with her reproductive goals in mind, and then continue to help her get pregnant after the surgery. And I, I think it's key. I think it's absolutely the best care for patients that you have full spectrum understanding. You have no bias to do surgery, no bias to do IVF. You you have you can tailor what's optimal for the patient because your skill set's broad. I th- I think it's the future. It's yeah. it's the best for the patients. Yeah, I, I agree. Okay, Katie has another question for you. Yes, I was wanting to ask, you know, we all have our mentors, Dr. Flick being my primary mentor, of course, but who were your mentors and who trained you? Well, Dr. Skamania, my chair was definitely one, as I mentioned, he just gave me so much freedom as a fellow and was so encouraging, taught me how to think, um, how to really conduct myself academically. He helped me with how to chair meetings, how to set up a meeting, how to edit, be editor for a journal, how to do all these things. He, he was key for me. And then my partner, Charles Cohen, and I, the synergy that we had in, at a creative time was also very, very good. So I think those were probably my two key ones. And then in residency, Dr. Hugerland, who is just a very good surgeon and a very good doctor, he was very influential also. Yeah, one of the things that I'm loving about seeing this picture of you in the OR with Dr. Ko is, um, you know, we so seldom actually get to scrub with another attending. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a special kind of magic that happens when you're able to do that and and a learning that can happen from each other. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I wish we could do that more. It was at a creative time. So when we were creating something new or that we were at our best, but then once that plateaued, then we would have like, power struggle <laughs> so then it was time to separate <laughs> I think that's, well, you know what that was one of the things I saw with the uterus transplant project which is that the transplant surgeons operate in teams and they they each have their side and they work together case after case after case and it's like listening to like a married couple fight with each oh, other right? <laughs> <laughs> underneath your breath here and the other one but, but doing something hard or creative then we would be perfect it would be like dancing it would be when it gets to be somewhat routine even though it's still really hard but after a while what becomes hard becomes routine right so yeah that's why the nine the 90s was of innovation was the golden age yeah oh it sounds like it was an incredible time i was also wondering what was it like being a female pioneer in the field especially back in the early days Oh, you, you wouldn't believe some of the stories, really. <laughs> um, so there were very few women in OBGYN. It's opposite of now, you right. know, so there were very few of us. Um, in my residency, they were shocked because they had two females that year. They really only wanted one. And they thought, oh, my God, like the world's going to come to an end. But uh, <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> and uh, 
So that was always awkward. And so you always had to prove yourself just a little bit more because people were not expecting you to be serious and to be competent and not to be surgical either that, you know, maybe you could deliver babies and do a C-section, but that would be about it. Um, luckily my chair, Dr. Scamania was very non-sexist and gave me so much encouragement that I owe a lot to him for that. And then, um, you know, during that time, like as a resident, I was <laughs> talking to somebody, the anesthesiologist would one of them would reach under the, the drapes and kind of pinch me during the case. Oh my gosh. I know. So now people, what they can think, think of as harassment, I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> so it was it's kind of hard to imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that, it, it just feels so, so ancient. Like didn't even really happen, but yeah, so it was, it was, it was harder in those days. And then when I got on the board of AGL, they again wanted a woman and they got two with Linda Bradley. And they were kind of freaking out about that, that they got two. <laughs> and then they would always turn to us and say, so what do women think about whatever? Like we're oh, some wow. collective with one thought pattern. <laughs> well, we think a variety of things. Um, so do you that think was- that things have improved? Oh, incredibly. Now you, you go to AGL and everyone's just, you're just a person doing different, different things. Back in those days, there were so few of us, either they thought you were somebody's wife or a drug rep. Right. Well, and and, I, and I've always, I've always disliked the term female surgeon because it's like, well, we're, we're just surgeons. Um, but I will in this one case say like, you know, what, what advice do you have for our future female surgeons? It is a different world, but it's improved so much, but I still think where I see issues is when it gets to be the glass ceiling, when it gets to be, who's going to have that very competitive top position of president chair, those type of things that, Sometimes I see it coming out a little bit there and you just have to be confident and put yourself forward. And then I also think that sometimes women still don't have as much confidence in presenting things or putting a video out. They think it needs to be so perfect before they'll take the risk. Where I see men sometimes putting stuff out that's a little less polished with great confidence. And that's a, a big generalization, but um, so I still think women are a little, still doubt themselves a little bit more. I think that's such an interesting observation because, you know, there is some data on surgical training that says that men may improve their skill sets faster, even though at the end, you know, we all end up at the same level of skill and they, it seems to be attributable to earlier risk-taking. Um, And I see that with some of my trainees, you know, sometimes men in the OR will be more comfortable doing something they've never done before jumping in, like, you know, to the point that sometimes I have to say like, whoa, (laughs) okay. I agree. I I find it easier to train people who are a little more cautious. And I think in the end, they turn out better. So sometimes if you're too gung-ho, that's, that's a problem. Yeah. But, but I, I think that sometimes taking those risks in surgery is what we need, you know, as men and women to help us actually grow and and get better. I think so too. Always, you know, keeping the patient first and really thinking it out and always planning. I, I always planned the surgeries, even though we were doing innovative, crazy new things, 
we thought it through a lot. We had a plan, if this, if that, and visualized it. And I think that visualization is very important. It's not like we just walked in, it's like, oh, well, let's give it a go. So <laughs> it was um, very mentally thought out, even though it may be the first time that it's being done. Yeah. So the mental part of surgery, I think, is also very important. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I was curious. I've always thought of you as like a true and true academic. Like you're, you're the full picture. You write, you publish, you teach, you do the clinical work. Um, and there's, there's just been such a huge shift in our field um, to becoming more privatized, moving out of the academic setting, especially, you know, in the field of IVF. So what do you see as the role of the academic REI, you know, as we move into the next decade, few decades? Well, I think it's tricky because inherently, I think I am an academic person, but what I was passionate about wouldn't have been accepted in the academic center. So, so I had to be private to follow the passion of what I think needed to be advanced. So, and I chose to be at a place that was um, private, but had residents that wrote and then with time merged with the medical college and rotated through. So it was a pseudo academic, pseudo private, and it worked for me with what I was trying to achieve at, at the, that time. So now, if I came out now, I probably would go into ac academic setting straight up. Um, I think it's, now I think it's easier to be, be more creative in that setting than it is in a private setting. Yeah, although, I mean, I'll say it, this year's ASRM, you know, some of the presentations that I listened to were coming out of, you know, some of these large private IVF centers because that's they what the some volume. of- yeah, they have the volume and um, and can help answer some interesting questions. So I'm hoping that, you know, that we can find a way to hybridize in the way that that you were able to do. And I think that is hybridization is the key. I don't think it totally matters exactly what setting you're in. I think it matters more what your mentality is and how you choose to spend your time. So yeah, I could have spent more of my time just seeing patients and it would have been more um, financially fruitful to do that than really investing back into doing academic things and research and flying around. And I loved it. I mean, I, I, I felt like I could, my goal was to do good. And I, my initial plan was just to see patients and do good. But as I caught fire, I realized I could do more impact by teaching other people. And that's really how it happened. It yeah. wasn't planned. It just evolved. Well, um, so I, I know I promised to get back to some of these pictures here. Oh, okay. um, I know not everybody listening can see them, but are there other key ones that you want to talk us through? Um, well, there's one at the bottom of Dr. Jordan Phillips, and he was a big influence to me too. He was very supportive at a, a young stage. He always was searching for talent, and I felt very um, honored to be chosen by him to be a leadership for the future. So he he was one. And then there's Dr. Cohen, uh, Brian Cohen, who had me teaching the residents. Yeah, teaching yeah. the residents course at a very early stage. I was quite young and he had me running that felt in national residence course. So he was key. And then there's another one with Dr. Olive and um, right there, but there's Dr. Olive and Dr. Parker, they were both very supportive of me too and very good um, academicians, good at 
boards and politics, and they they taught me a lot also. Uh, then the others are just teaching. So the favorite, how the teaching began was teaching suturing courses. So there's a bunch of suturing courses. We developed protocol how to teach. And there are a lot of people out there that still come up to me and say, thank you so much for teaching me how to suture. Yeah. It, I mean, it, I feel like I've learned real. so much just watching your videos. I mean, you, you are like the consummate teacher. <laughs> oh, thank you. Then there's the one picture in the corner with my broken hand. That oh, was, I saw that. I was curious what that yeah. was. That was 2007. I was president of AGL and I broke my hand skiing oh. and my right hand. And that, you know, at first was, uh, they are making fun of it, but then I had the cast off and I had RSD and they didn't know if I'd ever get my hand back. It was horrible. It was like the most depressing, stressful, horrible time of my life it is the thing I loved the very most the peak of my career, and I may not be able to do it again. So, and the I think stress that's all of our, our worst nightmare is surgery. And being president of AGL, running residency, all this, all at one time, it's very, very stressful time. But luckily, my hand's perfect. It all came around. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but that that's kind funny because one of my questions was going to be like, what was one of your biggest challenges along the way? But I think maybe that that, that was one of them. It was. And I think ever since then, I never 100% the same. I, I don't ski well anymore. Now I'm like such a chicken heart. I just I decided last year that's it. I'm done. It's like ridiculous how you ski. And I used to be a pretty good skier, but no. And then uh, also just that sense of invincibility that I had prior to that and part of just being young and, you know, brash, but it made me realize we're not invincible. So yeah, yeah. It, and that's okay too. It's okay yeah. to have that, that balance. So yeah, that was that was a low point. Well, this is just an incredible series of photos of, of an amazing career that I know is still ongoing, but thank you for sending these. I guess as a closing question, um, you know, what do you say, because I hear this sometimes um, to somebody says, you know, reproductive surgery is dead, you know, um, we're all IVF now, that's all we do, and there's really no future for reproductive surgery. That is absolutely not true, because there's patients with endometriosis that have pain and want to retain their fertility. Those patients need high quality fertility based surgery. It improves people who failed IVF for getting pregnant. And sometimes you can't just even do IVF. Like I have a patient that comes to mind that had isthmusil. She had it operated on three different places. It didn't work out. I operated on her. She had probably eight embryos, more than that, probably close to a dozen embryos transferred, no pregnancies. I did a final operation with her. She got pregnant spontaneously in addition to another pregnancy after that. So you can't just do IVF. You have to fix things sometimes. So that isthmusial was obstructing. So I think it has to be hand in hand. You can't just skip that part. We need things to work in addition. And a lot of people don't want only IVF as their access. They want to be first fixed if they can be. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I think you said that so perfectly. And I know there are many more of us who feel the same way. Um, but but this is part of the goal of these podcasts is for us to, you know, really shift our focus back to this because it is so meaningful for, for patients. And I think there's so many of us that just love, love the work. All right. Any closing comments? 
Well, I do think the new younger REIs want this surgical experience too. When I first got on the board of SRS, one of the brainchild moments of Keith Isaacson was to get REI training courses for in reproductive surgery. We got so much pushback from the REI directors on it, but Mike Diamond actually was one that pushed it through. We started the courses in 2009 and now they're, they've taken off. So I think there'll be a switch, a, a shift. I think the, the fellows will push it and I'm hoping that it fills the niche that we need. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. This has been such a treat. And I, I just have to say, watching you operate, it's, it's, it just, an, it's an act of both art and precision. And, and so anybody who has the chance, like, please do. And, and honestly, talking with you is such a privilege. Like you've been an inspiration to me and I know many others. And so I just want to thank you for your time and for being you and for sharing all these incredible Aww. perspectives with us. So thank, thank you for inviting me. And it was such a pleasure to be interviewed by you. I'm just so proud of everything you've accomplished and, <laughs> and more to come, I'm sure. Yeah, well, and I know, unfortunately, Katie had to leave to go take care of a patient. Um, oh. but I think she was so tickled to be part of this also. So anyway, th thank you so much. And um, I look forward to seeing you soon. You too. Thank you. Right. Bye. Bye. Bye.